Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Sensational She Geek, live from Yancey Street. There are a lot of really exciting things on this episode, so stay tuned because we have a lot to cover. Uh, we're going to start the episode with a couple of random notes of things that we'll talk about when we get there. But um, the tarot lessons for the week, the card of the week is number three of the Major Arcana, the Empress. We don't have so much history for it, uh, but we do have a fair amount of other notes about the symbolism and the varieties and some fun pop culture stuff, including the anime tarot and the Marvel tarot. Um, we are doing a manga of the week that is a lot more... <laughs> tame um then i've been kind of doing the past couple of ones these crazy like early 2000s 90s ones uh this is just a short two volumer called daily report about my witch senpai super cute love to see it uh and then we have some manga news some exciting manga news and that leads us into comic books we'll cover what came out this week the week of the 8th of march uh, here in 2023, whenever you may be listening to this. Um, and then for comic book news, there are two main points, one for DC and one for Marvel. Uh, also one positive and one negative in my comic book reading opinion. So we'll see those when we get there. We're also going to talk a little bit about what happened to Donnie Cates, because it's relevant to what we're discussing here. Um, but then for the recent reads and events, uh, we're the last Lazarus Planet Aftershocks that we've been covering this week will be Batman versus Robin number five. Holy shit, that ending was cheesy. Um, and then Action Comics 1052, which, let's be honest, I was here for the Power Girl story and didn't really care about the rest, so if you wanted the rest... My bad, I guess. Purgatory Must Die number three was super awesome. We'll be talking a lot about that, as we will Cosmic Ghost Rider number one, Rogan Gambit number one, less so, and then Harley Quinn 27, the unfortunately last issue by Stephanie Phillips, and then two others that were less, <laughs> that I enjoyed less, but we'll talk about them when we get there. I'm also going to be covering the seven issues fairly in-depth, because I feel like it, I guess, um, of Empress by Mark Millar. It was one of... Um, I remember, like, I have very vivid memories of reading it when it was coming out when I was finishing college. Um, and for whatever reason, I fell behind on it, and I just felt like catching up on it, because this was, like, a really, I remember really, really enjoying it. Um, so there we go, we'll go over Empress. Um, and then for the TV and movies, we'll have some new, some, some notes, some announcements, a couple of which are very exciting, uh, some anime news... But of course, we're all going to be here for the Mandalorian uh, season two, sorry, three, episode two. It was called The Minds of Mandalore, and oh boy, I thoroughly enjoyed this one if you got annoyed by my enthusiasm about last week. This is going to be way worse, so just putting that. <laughs> I liked it. Um, but yeah, so let's go ahead and jump on in. I had said that I was going to start with something kind of odd, um, or random, I guess is what I said, but, um, it comes from Twitter and it might be a little odd, but I'm just curious what people think of it. Um, I came across this thing that G Willow Wilson, who was the writer of Poison Ivy, um, <laughs> it was an unfortunate conversation between the two of us. Uh, she posted this article that she thought of this woman who was very annoying and I, was like, oh, why is she annoying? And I was like, you know what, I'll just read it myself and find out. And so I read the article and didn't find her annoying in the slightest. It was more in the kind of thing of, you know, this person is very long-winded and thoughtful and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if it was a man, they would be called an intellectual, but, it, but it's a woman, so she's being called annoying. <laughs> 
Uh, and um, I kind of had replied that eventually, and G. Willow Wilson was like, well, um, I hadn't replied that. I had replied that I didn't see why she was annoying, and G. Willow Wilson replied with this very pretentious answer, which included the word pretentious, uh, ironically enough. <laughs> it called the article pretentious about this woman, but it was really, I'm a, that's the phrasing. And she used the term infidelity, which was not actually accurate, and maybe I missed something, but I'll put the link to it below, and you can tell me what you think about it. Uh, it's a female philosopher, um, which in the modern era sounds completely ridiculous, and I would agree, yeah, that, that does sound completely ridiculous. Uh, just modern, like, the whole concept of that. But personally, I think ph uh, philosophy is very heavily tied into psychology, and you never really see them talk about that. But So that's why whenever I read these, like, philosophy articles or this article about this philosopher, I am 100% looking at this from a psychology lens. Like, that's just how I see, I see those two as the same topic, basically. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious what other people think. Um, if the if the, I guess, vibe that you got from it was the same as what I got. So just curious. But to be warned, um, it does cover topics of things like marriage, abortion, motherhood, long-term relationships, children, things like that. So um, if, if, if you don't want to read very in-depth thoughts about that kind of stuff, maybe don't on this one. Moving into our tarot lesson of the week, this is going to be going over card number three of the Major Arcana, and that is the Empress card. Uh, this one does not have as much history behind what I'm going to be discussing with it, um, but I, I'll go over the symbolism, and I have some notes on some things about um, what, what other creators and, uh, people of importance, I guess, have said about the card and the character on the card and whatnot. Some, some weirder than others, to be fair, uh, to be very actually kind. <laughs> Weird is a nice way of putting it. Um, but yeah, so we'll go a little, I guess the, the main historical thing that I have to say, the only really historical thing I have to say, um, is, would be that, um, decks previous or prior, I guess, to the Rider Waite Smith tarot usually had uh, the Empress sitting on a throne and the shield that we'll discuss in the symbolism of the card um, bears an eagle instead of the sign of Venus. Uh, I have not really been able to discover why aside from just the general royalty and protection. Um, but yeah, that's the history. <laughs> um, and then the rest of it is pretty much just symbolism and kind of like almost psychology behind the cards design. So talking about the symbolism of what we appears on the card, uh, you have the queen or the empress, I should say, is what this card actually is, sitting on cushions among a field of wheat. She sits next to, uh, there's a waterfall behind her. There is a heart-shaped shield with the symbol of Venus. Um, and we'll go over further details as we go over this. So um, some of the cushions are red. The main cushion that she sits on is red, which is a color of passion and love. Um, it's more meant to depict the feminine sexuality, a sense of feminine sexuality, than the virginal high priestess, who we will talk about a little bit more uh, in a second regarding the connections to her, uh, her and the empress. So 
The red also, uh, it also signifies war, aggression, warning, and then the cushion signify comfort. So put together, the red cushions symbolize what you might call the feminine wiles, influencing her power on the emperor or influencing the power of the emperor with her power either way. She wears a white robe with fruit on it. Traditionally, I think it's supposed to be taken as pomegranates. This one that I'm looking at is lemons. Um, the white is meant to signify that she is a blank slate because, and the fruit uh, being kind of on there, those tied in combination um, are, bear the symbolism of her being the fruitful mother of thousands, which was the term that uh, Mr. Waite used when he was talking about the cards and their designs for the cards. It would seem that the Latin version of that was refugium, refugium, <laughs> peccatorum, refugium peccatorum, the fruitful mother of thousands. So there you go. Good for you, Mr. Waite. She does traditionally hold a scepter. Uh, the scepter is not pointed like a man's would be. It is rounded like a uh, more feminine kind of shape and symbol, and it is meant to be her ruling power. And then as for the shield bearing the uh, the Venus, the symbol of Venus, um, the shield is shaped as a heart, which is symbolizing love. And the shield obviously symbolizes protection. And then uh, it obviously coincides to Venus astrologically, you know, the goddess of femininity and all of that. Her cushions and all that sits among a field of wheat, which symbolize prosperity and her dominion over all growing things. Again, back to the fruitful mother of thousands. Uh, and then near her sits a waterfall, which symbolizes the perpetual life-sustaining nourishment that uh, kind of flows through the empress. And yes, it is very much a childbearing kind of thing. However, um... You don't have to take it as childbearing and fertility. You could take it as just a uh, feminine instinct, you know. Or I guess as um, what Wait said was feminine wiles. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's quite the same thing, but there you go. Um, she traditionally wears a diadem that has 12 stars, which gets into more of the symbolism. It's the 12 months of the year, the 12 hours on the clock, you know, somewhat of the day. And tied in with the symbolism of a crown's rulership and authority, uh, that would all symbolize her authority and command over the year and the seasons and the cycles and whatnot. Now, interestingly, she is connected with the death card as she is accustomed to life, death, and rebirth through those cycles of life like that diadem would suggest. Now, going back to some of the um, similarities between her, the Empress card and the High Priestess, both of them wear a crown. Uh, the difference is that the High Priestess represents the, quote, virgin state of the cosmic subconsciousness, whereas the Empress is the, quote, productive activity generating of the same conscious sub, oh, sorry, productive activity generating of the same subconscious, which is uh, some kind of uh, extra explanation that I found somewhere. Um, 
on Venus for the goddess Venus, excuse me, for the for the goddess Venus historically her day of celebration and feasting was Friday. Her celebrants would eat fish because fish was thought as an aphrodisiac. And yes, that was somewhat copied by Christians down the line. Uh, she is also the card the Empress, the character of the Empress is also theorized as being pregnant, which of course furthers the themes of reproduction and fertility. Now, going on to some of the weirder stuff, uh, thank you, Mr. Waite here. What he said is that the Empress is the inferior Garden of Eden as opposed to nature's superior, which I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, he also said she is above all things universal fecundity, which I couldn't figure out what that meant in context. Um, yeah, I even looked it up. I could not figure it out. Uh, she is, above all things, universal fecundity and the outer sense of the world, the repository of all things nurturing and sustaining and of feeding others. What that really comes down to is basically feminine or motherly instinct, you would say then, I guess. Um but 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 the but the he had did he have to phrase it like that with the like um <laughs> the, the 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 somewhat perverted inclusion of the emperor or the empress um being his the emperor's repository I mean <laughs> why uh, but I did find a better wrap-up of uh, her symbolism and whatnot, and that was uh, the spirit message is that the creative impulse is in all things and all people, including you, and you must not only accept it, but honor that. So, there you go. That makes way more sense and is way less weird. The basic meanings of the Empress card, when you do draws of uh, Empress in divination tarot, um, upright would be femininity, beauty, nature, nurturing, and abundance. Reverse is creative block dependence on others. Um, so to kind of expand on that a little bit, it says, as the mother archetype, the Empress urges you to venture out into nature to ground your energy and be in the, fl be in the flow with the earth. Take a trip to your favorite natural setting, be a forest, beach, mountain, or lake, and sit for a couple of minutes, hours, or even days to breathe in the energy that surrounds you while marveling in the beauty of your surroundings. Allow yourself the time and the space to enter a different frame of mind and receive the grounding spirit of nature into your heart and consciousness. When you do this, you can reach higher planes of consciousness. When you're in tune with the energy of the Empress, you will naturally take on her mothering nature. You feel, you feel a strong urge to nurture and care for others from a place of loving compassion and support. You see it as a gift and an honor to tend to others, and in doing so, you too receive benefit. In a, in a more literal sense, you may step into the role of mother, perhaps as the mother of a newborn, caretaker of other people's children, or spending more quality time with your kids. Uh, then it goes into, of course, the idea of pregnancy and stuff, and that's not really something that I'm interested in, so we don't really need to go over that one. But that's the basic meaning of a uh, Empress Tarot draw. And notice none of that is any kind of hoodoo, funky, funky stuff. None of it said go buy a crystal. It was all just saying, take a walk in nature and see what the earth tells you. That's a very reasonable thing. Psychology tells you going for a walk will clear your mind. So hey, this is why I like tarot. It's not any kind of funky, magical bullshit. It's very grounded. 
Um, we do have a couple of other forms of the Empress card that takes place in uh, tarot decks. Um, in various versions of tarot decks, we have a Wildwood tarot deck by one Mark Ryan. She is called the Green Woman in the Greenwood Tarot by Cheska Potter. She is called, again, Green Woman. I should have read that first. New Orleans Voodoo Tarot by Louise Martini. Uh, is called Ayazan. The Goddess Tarot by... This is all very popular tarot decks. The Goddess Tarot by Chris Waldher is called Fertility. And as I have been doing, I'll go over the archetype that is in the Natasha Iglesias anime tarot because this is a really fun tool to use to further explain the archetypes of traditional tarot cards. So on the anime tarot, the empress is, and I apologize for me saying this like this because I will most definitely not do it right, Yamato, Yamato Nadashiko. Yamato Nadashiko. It's not too bad, right? Okay. The Empress's analog in the anime is the Yamato Nadashiko archetype. Translated as Flower of Japanese Womanhood, a Yamato Nadashiko is a woman with traditionally desirable and respected attributes. She is loyal, wise, nurturing, feminine, and beautiful. While occasionally depicted as docile and differential, sometimes too much so, she can also be inspired, creative, and idealistic in her own right. She can have one hell of a backbone. Very obvious um, similarities to what we were talking about for the Empress. To go over some of these, the character of Rinko Yamato from My Love Story. Inuyasha, it is Izayo and Kikyo pre-resurrection. I haven't gotten that far in that show. In Demon Slayer, it is Tamayo and Nezuko pre-demonification. In Kimi ni Todoke, it is Todoke. It is Sawako Kurunuma. I definitely said that wrong. In Oh My Goodness, it's Bell Dandy. What on earth is that? I don't know what a lot of these are. <laughs> um, in Cardcaptor Sakura, it is uh, it is Rika Sasaki. Sasaki. There's a couple others that are in this, but I have already made a fool of myself. Uh, but the shows that they're from are... Who... Kamisama Kiss, Ranma and a half, Ranma one half, I don't know. I Yori Ayoshi and Kimi ni Todoke. I already said that one. Yeah. Let's have Anna brutalize more <laughs> names. Uh, the other one that we have uh, is the Marvel Tarot. Uh, and the character for the Marvel Tarot, who is been described as the Empress, is Morgan Le Fay. So let's read this random Marvel character's journal entry on Morgan Le Fay. Once upon a time, the powerful sorceress Morgan Le Fay was a beloved priestess of the goddess Gaia. She helped bring bountiful harvests to her followers and healed them when they were ill, but this story does not have a happily ever after. Something or someone changed her, and now she is only interested in destruction and pain. She has become as dangerous as she is beautiful, and that is saying something. I must find a way to reach her, though. She is the only being who can lead me to the second item I need to fulfill my quest. Only Morgan Le Fay can show me the Eb Eben Rose. Ten of ten times, the Empress is Morgan Le Fay. He's going through and drawing tarot cards and seeing who's going to end up being it. Um, so yeah, that, that makes sense. You get the keys of um, the mothering, the nurturing, the earthly, um, and then also the dangerous and the rage, which was at the beginning of the symbolism that we talked about. So yay. 
that is oh one more thing though is that in jojo's bizarre adventure the uh one of the stands of the character stardust cruise of one of, oh sorry i don't watch it my husband does one of the stands of one of the characters uh, on the Stardust Crusaders, Nena, or possibly Nina, has a stand called the Empress, which is obviously named after this tarot card. So, hey, the more you know. Also, is anybody interested in doing, like, a tarot thing? Would that be fun to anybody? I don't know. Let me know. Our manga of the week, as I mentioned at the beginning, is Daily Report About My Witch Senpai, which is completely adorable. It's by Maka Mochida. Mochida. Um, and this is going to be our little cooling off after going pretty hard last week and the week before with Boys Over Flowers and The Wallflower. Uh, this one is only two volumes, I, think, I keep repeating that, um, and is published by Seven Seas Entertainment. Absolutely adorable. Um, it's got 4.8 stars on Amazon and 7.6 out of 10 at a my anime list, which I think is pretty good. Um... It's based on the web manga, which was uh, had the Japanese title, which I will not try pronouncing, uh, which was released on the author's Twitter and Pixiv accounts starting in 2017, and then it was published in English in, starting in January of 2022. And it only had the two volumes, so it's already out, and it's adorable. Um, as for what it's really about, if it's not really obvious based on the title... Um, it says, there's a couple of different descriptions that I have here, so, um, let's see. It says, Misuno is an office drone with his own ups and downs at work, but thankfully he has an ally, his senpai Shizuka, who happens to be a witch. Shizuka is always ready to lend a hand to those in need, but Misuno thinks she should take better care of herself, since zipping around on a broomstick to run errands can be quite stressful. Is Misuno's overprotective concern for Shizuka driven merely by respect for this flustered witch, or could it be more? Let this magical romantic comedy cast its spell on you. Um, and then it has... There is not a lot that can phase Naoto Misuno, a sincere and solemn office worker. One of the rare exceptions is Shizuka Hoshino, his senior co-worker who also happens to be a witch. Hoshino goes out of her way to help Misuno, always flying to the scene on her broom to save the day. In contrast to Misono, who is always calm and composed, Hoshino is easily flustered and often scrambles to find the right words to express herself. However, the way Hoshino wears her heart on her sleeve causes Misono's own heart to skip a beat. Before he knows it, Misono finds himself vying for Hoshino's attention. However, things are seldom as easy as they seem. He must be prepared to brave it all, even protective brothers and jealous ex-boyfriends, to ensure that his feelings reach Hoshino. There is a little bit of drama in this one. Um, I tried to get as many descriptions in there as I could that weren't, like, just repeating, because <laughs> I'm really bad at describing these. I just want to just say it's cute, it's super cute, it's adorable. But yeah, I, I do highly recommend it, for sure. There's actually a fair amount of manga news for some of these. Um, for some of these, I haven't caught up all the way on them. And one, I don't actually read the manga, but I'm aware of the anime. Um, but we'll see as we go along here. So starting off, the Girlfriend Girlfriend manga is entering its, quote, final conflict, meaning its, you know, final arc. It says the, this year's 14th issue of Kodansha Weekly Shonen Magazine revealed on Wednesday that uh, girlfriend, girlfriend manga is entering its final c conflict. 
the Kodansha US publishing that started releasing it digitally in 2021 describes the manga as follows. Naoya just got a girlfriend, the gorgeous Saki-chan, and though her and though their intensities often pit themselves against another like fire and ice, they're totally uncontrollably in love with each other. He vows to never cheat. When out of the blue, he receives another confession. Nagisa's cute, sweet, and she's made him lunch to boot. He knows he can't cheat, but he can't let a cutie like this get away. So what does he? So he does the logical question mark thing. Asks Saki for permission to date them both. The confidence, the arrogance, the very gall. No matter the outcome, Naoya's future will be lively. It's cute. Um, the anime. Um, let's see. I think that actually says here. Yeah. The manga inspired a television anime that premiered in July 2022. It was rared on Crunchyroll, and it will have a second season. So that's pretty cool. It's a very cute anime, and I was totally cool with it until, like, the last episode. And then the main character kind of got a bit too much for me. So we'll see how season two goes. Um, I haven't read this one. Um, but I don't think I will. <laughs> um, but I will keep up. I'll see what happens when the second season of this one comes out. We also have news that, uh, if you are aware of Aharon is, is indecipherable, it is, um, Aharon san wa haka renai, sorry, uh, is entering its final arc of the manga. Now, I'm kind of sad about this one because, um, I do read it, but I can't tell you how because it's actually not been released officially in English ever, <laughs> um, which I'm really sad about, because I would love to collect this one. So cute. Um, the show was on uh, Crunchyroll, which I think I think was back um, in last year. But anyway, it's on chapter 163, uh, which premiered on March 5th, and that revealed that it only has four more chapters until it is going to be uh, finished. And it's put out every other Sunday, so if there's no more breaks in the schedule, the last episode will be putting out the well, last chapter on April 30th, uh, which gives me time to catch up. No, I'm not going to be able to catch up that fast. I have other things to read, too. Uh, she convinces herself. Uh, it says the teen romantic comedy follows the indecipherable day of short, quiet Reina Aharin and Rado, who sits next to her in class. Aharin is not good at gauging the distance between people or personal boundaries, and Rado initially sensed some distance some distance between the two of them. Then one day, when Rado picked up the eraser that Aharin had dropped, the distance between them suddenly became uncomfortably close. From way too distant to way too close, Aharin is simply unpredictable. And yes, this one is on Crunchyroll, and I highly, highly recommend it. Our next manga news point... Wandering Witch, The Journey of Elena, the manga is going to be ending with its sixth volume. I actually have the first two of those, so I, it's nice to know that there's going to be six. Uh, so the fifth compiled book of Isuki Nanao's Wandering Witch, The Journey of Elena, manga, the adaption of Jugi Shireishi's light novel series of the same title, revealed on Tuesday that the manga will end in the sixth volume. It will be published in spring winter of 2024. 
Square Enix began publishing them in English back on June 20th of, I guess, 2022, and they describe it as a gentle and beguiling tale of a young witch's travels based on the best-selling light novel series. Ever since she was a little girl reading books of magic and adventure, Alina has dreamed of following in the footsteps of her childhood idol, the, the witch Nike. I think is how you say that, and leaving a life of living a life of travel. Now a full-fledged witch herself, Elena sets off on a journey without a destination, wandering far and wide to see the world. With each new place she sees and person she meets, Elena's world grows a little bit richer. The light novels were beginning to be published back in 2016, and the 20th light novel, wow, that's a lot, will be coming out on March 14th and the 21st, October 13th. That is, of course, speaking in, I believe, Japanese. Um, yes, because here in English, we're only on the 10th and 11th in coming this March, well, this is March, hey, and this coming July. Um, I'm not doing the light novel, I'm doing the manga. Um, I actually picked it up and discovered once I had already bought it that it was a light novel originally so hey you live and learn but hey I love it it's cute um and I'm excited to catch up on the final what is it there's four others I haven't read yet now when they're all out in English Last bit of manga news here, if you're aware of the teasing master Takagi-san manga, uh, it has been listed now with a live-action adapt adaptation, which I decided to put in the manga one um, because for some reason it's saying it's an adaptation of the manga and not the anime, so hey, like that's fine, I guess. Um, the store chain is listing the special edition of whoo, Soichiro Yamato. Yama oh <laughs> Yamamoto's 19th teasing master Tagaki-san manga volume with an image of a wraparound jacket banned this week. The image indicates that the manga is inspiring a live-action adaptation in an unspecified format directed by Rikia Imaizumi, the live-action who call me Chihiro film director. Uh, the 19th volume is going to be shipping on Friday and teasing a perpetual Oh, bundles a perpetual, teasing perpetual calendar? I'm not sure what that means. Uh, the manga is being released in English by Yen Press, and volume 16 is coming out, oh, sorry, came out in December. What they say about it is, middle schooler Nishikata has had it with his classmate who sits nearby, Tagaki. Tagaki. Day in and day out, she comes after him with every sort of trick or prank. Even when he tries to tease her back, she's always one step ahead and... And he's not about to give up that easily in this battle of cunning and youth. New this week in comics, this week being March 8th for everything being released. Uh, we have a lot of number ones from some indie publishers, so that's really exciting. There's a couple of other number ones from the big two, and then some just general things that I am excited about. So... Starting up here with one that I'm probably the most excited for out of these number ones... And that is Stoneheart number one. This is by Emma Kubert, uh, coming from Image Comics. Yes, Emma Kubert is one of the Kuberts. You know, the Kuberts. The the Kuberts. There's a lot of Kuberts. Which Kubert do you want? I was going to try and, and say which one's which, but I know that they don't like getting mixed up. So, the Kuberts. Hey. <laughs> what Image has to say about her, or this editor probably is more likely, Emma Kubert, the artist behind Frank Miller's Frank Miller... Uh, sorry, but fine. Artist behind Frank Miller presents is Frank Miller's Pandora. Jeez, that's a mouthful. And Image Comics' Inkblot and Radiant.
Radiant Pink. I really liked Inkblot. Didn't know she was doing Radiant Pink. Introduces her whimsically Twisted Tale Stoneheart, a new ongoing action fantasy series. Deja Thoris, number one, is being published by Dynamite with writer Chuck Brown and artist Emiliana Pena. Uh, I've met Chuck Brown. He's a really cool dude. He wrote um, Bitterroot. Bitterroot was really, really good. Um, if you have not read Bitterroot, I definitely recommend it, or at least checking it out. It is a family of monster hunters in the Harlem Renaissance. What they say about it is it's an all new, or at least Deja Thoris, is that it's an all new vision of the Princess of Mars. Eisner Award winning writer Chuck Brown and stellar artist Emiliana Pina present Deja Thoris, a tale set before the events of Edgar Rice Burroughs' first classic novel. I need to know that I need to look up the history of Deja Thoris clearly. We have covers by Lee Lee, who I'm pretty sure is not how you say her name, but somebody needs to tell me, so I stopped butchering it. Uh, Lucy, or guessing, is more accurate. Lucy Perillo, Joseph Michael Linzer, Jungian Yoon, Elias Shatsudi, Rebecca Puebla, Joshua Swaby, and Jade Hope. Some really, really good covers in there. Oswald and the Star Chaser, number one, comes from Scout, with writer Tommy Kulik, and art by Tyler Viano Marin and Tom Hoskins, Hoskison. Torn from his training after King Feck, I guess Feck, yeah, usurped the throne, Space Knight Oswald Bredders embarks on a quest to save the Starlands. As headstrong as he is, even Oswald knows he can't restore his fallen kingdom alone, so he searches for his childhood heroes to bolster his ranks. With the watchful eye of King Feck omnipresent, Oswald luckily runs into all-star help. The mysterious mercenary star chaser joins his cause, but can she really be trusted? It's It, it all starts here, the adventure of a lifetime at the edge of space. Clear number one is coming from Dark Horse. For some reason, I did not write down the creators, but it is set in a future where neurolog neurological filters allow anyone to choose how they perceive reality, where a man chooses to live without one gets tangled up in a mystery that leads to deadly heights of wealth and power. Arc number one is from Image by writers Paul, oh, sorry, yeah, Paul Feinstein and Ryan Cady, and Matt Hawkins with artist Attilio Rojo. And Stevan Sedgwick, which is definitely not how you say that, does the cover. The wealthy heir of an industrialist battles illegal poaching by day as an environmental lobbyist and by night as an environmental lobbyist, and by night leading an armed crusade against a criminal empire. Moving into the big two number ones, Adventures of Superman John Kent number one from DC Comics. Another Superman has fallen. Across the multiverse, Kal-El's are being murdered. Val Zod, the Superman of Earth 2, believes only one man can stop the killing, Kal-El's son, John Kent. John will have to step across dimensions and face the killer of the Kal-El's. The monstrous Ultraman. What? <laughs> the man who kidnapped him and tortured him for years. Interesting. And Valzad is not acting alone in trying to save Superman. The Superman. Who is the mysterious woman alongside him, and what is her shocking connection to the Super family? First, it is the first meeting of Valzad and John Kent, and it is by Tom Taylor, Clayton Henry, and Jordi Belair. We have covers from Marcelo Maiolo, Jordi Tarragona. I'm terrible. Uh, really bad at this. <laughs> Lee Weeks, Luis Guerrero. Uh, or Luis, yeah, Luis Guerrero, Dan Mora, Zoo Orzu, Megan Huang, 
Jasmine Yasmin Flores Montanez, A.L. Kaplan, and Rafael Sarmento. New Mutants Lethal Legion number one is a Marvel kickoff this week, the first appearance of a new Lethal Legion, which is going to include the Grim Reaper. Uh, the writer, Charlie Anders, and the artist is Anid Balam. When someone starts building a new Lethal Legion, will Krakoa's youngest class finally be outmatched, featuring fan favorites like Wolfsbane and Karma alongside new explosive newcomers like Escapade. This is a series you can't miss. Everything leads to the fall of X. Don't sleep on the start. I definitely am sleeping on the start. <laughs> X-23, Deadly Regenesis number one, is another Marvel title from Eric Schultz and Edgar Salazar. Assassin or X-Man, The Deadly Days of X-23. Laura Kinney, aka X-23, was cloned from Logan and trained by the facility to be a deadly assassin. Even as she tries to put that life behind her, forces will try to drag her back, and she'll fight them tooth and claw. Beset by new enemies as well as old favorites, the series follows X-23 during her days as a member of the X-Men and X-Force when she walked away from the island of Utopia to find where she truly belongs. Predator number one is from Marvel, second Predator series they're publishing. Uh, Poison Ivy number 10 is by G. Willow Wilson <laughs> and Marcio Takara, covers by Jessica Fong, Jenny Frizen, Joshua Mil Middleton, Simone DeMeo, and Skylar Patridge. They're all fantastic covers. Before Ivy embarks on her trip back to Gotham, our verdant villainess sets her sights on a fungus-loving Hollywood celebrity with a lifestyle brand and spa that's raising some major red flags on Ivy's radar. I'm thinking this is a Gwyneth Paltrow joke. All this because poor Janet from HR wanted to have some R&R before the car ride back east. Aw, jeez. Vampirella vs. Red Sonia number 5 is the series finale, which is coming from Dynamite. And then Bloodline Daughter Blade number 2 from Marvel is uh, supposedly Bloodline meeting her dad, Blade. Mary Jane and Black Cat has issue four of five. Sins of Sinister is pretty much just Nightcrawler's number two. And then X-Men number 20 is going to have more brood stuff. We have two points of comic book news this week. We'll start with the positive one. And that is that Philip Kennedy Johnson is moving over to Marvel with the Incredible Hulk series. Philip Kennedy Johnson, you will know if you're familiar with DC Comics. He did the... Um... The Superman stuff where he went to War World, that was fairly recently. It was it was also um, the Future State Superman, which were some of the, if not the best written <laughs> Superman issues I have ever read. Um, really, really fantastic writing and really, really fantastic understanding of the character through and through. But uh, they let him continue the kind of war world stuff that he was doing and the backstory. And he apparently had way more even planned if they had wanted him to do that. So, uh, But he's wrapped all of that up, I think, with the, uh, the Lazarus Planet stuff was kind of him bowing out and finishing up and leading it on to the next writers who with the new Superman series just started. I didn't like it, but yeah, there you go. Um, but yeah, he's coming over to Marvel and he is doing the Incredible Hulk series. The Hulk series is finishing. Uh, there is one going right now, in case you forgot. <laughs> um, all these articles are saying it's Donny Cates' Hulk series, but what happened to Donny Cates? Because um, I'm reading all these articles and they're saying, 
and following his explosive run on the Thor with Donny Cates. That was an explosive run. That People, like, really fell off of that at the end because it wasn't that great. It was kind of bum, to be honest. Um, and the reviews will say so. Um, and then this Hulk series, which, you know, Donny Cates fans are seem to be the ones who are eating it up. But it's not really his series, is it? Because um, it's him and Ryan Otley. Ryan Otley started co-writing with him. <laughs> Looks like Daniel Warren Johnson was also writing with him. Um, potentially, maybe that was a second story. But yeah, uh, Ryan Otley potentially was writing with him. I know he's doing the art as well, but um, issue 11 was all Otley. Issue 12 is Kate and Otley, and he's credited as writer as well. Um, when that was the recent one that came out. And then the next one is, again, all Otley. Um, and then I think the next one after that is the last issue and potentially that one is even all Ollie as well Um, so what happened to Johnny Cates he was supposed to be like the next coming Um, like the next Todd McFarlane like bigger than the next like they're like whatever, whatever. Like you're, oh yeah, that's that's the classic comic creator who is like the big one. Like that was supposed to be Donny Cates was the next that. Well, that certainly didn't pan out. Uh, it seems that his ego got checked by Marvel when his books weren't selling, and now he has been taken off of this book entirely. <laughs> Not doing much elsewhere. <laughs> so yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson going on Hulk. What do they have to say about it? Uh, enraged Hulk is trying to take over Bruce's body permanently. Blah, blah, blah. Mother of Horrors, new character who's primordial. It's all Hulk stuff. It's all Hulk stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're a fan of the character, that's fantastic. Unfortunately, that's not the only bit of comic book news that we have because uh, Stephanie Phillips is officially... I guess I just missed the news on this one because we've known for a while, apparently, that Stephanie Phillips is officially has left Harley Quinn, um, the series. Uh, was my favorite run of Harley Quinn that I have ever read. Uh, so I'm sad that she's leaving, obviously. I am a little bit more sad that she's leaving it to Teeny Howard, who I have extremely low expectations on her Harley Quinn run because her Catwoman run was wild disappointing. Um... Yeah, it was all just very disappointing. Um, Teeny Howard kind of ended up being the female Donny Cates, in my opinion. <laughs> um, really didn't like the Catwoman. Unfortunately, it doesn't mean that she is picking up Harley Quinn and leaving Catwoman to somebody else. She's still writing Catwoman, too. So um, I will probably read the first issues of Harley Quinn to see how she does that. But no promises. Four things that we read this week, or I read this week, we're starting with uh, some of the aftershocks from Lazarus Planet, beginning with Batman vs. Robin number five, which had one of the worst endings I think I have ever read. Um, not because it was a bad ending, but because it was so, so cheesy. Painfully cheesy. Um, we knew, based on the end of Lazarus Planet, that Batman is still being... Um, Possessed by Nezha, the demon. The demon Nezha. Uh, Nezha man has now captured Robin, and they do their little fight. Um, he learns from his mother Talia that if he removes Nezha, though, his father's gonna die, because he's basically holding together Bruce's body <laughs> with his magic. 
Uh, Monkey Prince shows up and lends a hand, does some cool stuff. Uh, Bat Family versus Nezha doesn't work out very well for them. And then we get finally uh, Zaytana, Enchantress, and Pigsy, who bring Nezha's real body to the plan. Um, and Damien knows that that's going to mean the death of his father. But otherwise, the cost is too great. And when it's done, he demands that uh, Enchantress transfer his own life energy to his father to save him. Basically, it won't be enough. Um, even the whole Bat family, she says, donating pieces of their own life energy to back to him won't be enough. So... What does Damien do? Damien Wayne, son of fucking Talia al Ghul, takes a cell phone and pleads to all of Gotham as a whole and has them call out, We are Batman, and donate bits of their life energy. Yay, Batman. He's alive. The end. What was that? So bad. I ugh, So cringe. In other news... Action Comics 1052, um, there was some stories about Lex and Steel and Superman. I don't care. Uh, Power Girl was why I was reading. She has telepathy now, so that's really exciting. Uh, Kara shows up on the scene with some kind of weird speech thing that's going on. She can't really talk in English. Um, Power Girl has to go into her mindscape with her, with her new telepathy power. Yay! Uh, and they get all dressed very fancy. Um, or at least Kara is dressed very fancy. Um, the hero outfits, I noticed that the new designs complement each other very nicely. Um, like, they reverse each other. They're in reversal of each other. It's really nice. Um, but where, you know, where Kara has color, Power Girl has whiteness in her suit, Kara's dark emblems on her top uh, are white and yellow on Karen Star. It's, it's, it's really cool. Um, but anyway, in this plot, we learn that someone attacked Kara's speech center as a way of trying to get to Karen, a.k.a. Power Girl. Karen mentions conveniently, uh, or being conveniently left out of family dinner invites, birthdays, etc. among the super family. And then at the end of the issue, we learn that Omen is probably the attacker, which makes sense because she just kind of showed up, I think. Um, and there's something about black roses as well. Purgatory Must Die, number three, is still one of the coolest things I'm reading right now. I don't know how this is so good, but it's amazing. Three issues in, and I am just absolutely... I wish it was ongoing. It's only five issues, unfortunately. But in this issue, Purgatory and her little friend are in the Garden of Eden. It is hilarious. She does this, like, check the shit out. I'm like Snow White. That's, like, her whole personality, and I adore it. The sense of humor. Oh, I love it. So dry. Uh, they come across something vile and gross, so they follow its trail. In Memphis, the team-up is Vampirella, Draculina, Panther, Nyx, and Chastity, all hunting down Purgatory. In Virginia, Evil Ernie is on the hunt. In Massachusetts, it's Lilith, and in Hell, with one L... Lady Hell feeds Purgatory's trail to all of the hunters so that they can find her. Apparently Hell and Lilith, who is Vampirella and Draculina's mother, apparently they have some beef, but I'm not sure what that is. Um, again, I thought Lady Hell was a Coffin Comics character, so more all kinds of stuff. Uh, Purgatory, meanwhile, in Eden, follows the trail of animals from Eden trapped... Um, like, rotting but still alive, and she's like, well, that must feel funky. <laughs> At the end of the trail, she finds a weird, goopy monster thing with tentacles, and she's kind of taken by it. She makes jokes 
that you would expect. Uh, the five who are traveling together make it to Iraq, and Vampirella is the one to guess that Purgatory is in Eden. Evil Ernie arrives, and Chastity recognizes him as Hell's Hunting dog um, and blasts him with her shotgun. Vampirella tries to reach Eden while Draculina makes fun of her because they're sisters and that's what they do until their mother Lilith arrives. Lilith says that Draculonians aren't allowed in and neither is Purgatory so she couldn't possibly be there. Meanwhile everybody else is still fighting Ernie. I hate Ernie. Why is he? He's fine I guess. I don't know. Back in Eden, Purgatory's friend is almost caught as well and starts bleeding from the face when suddenly everything stops and Purgatory kind of frees herself very easily, gives off a big giant boom with her powers and blasts the creature to bits. This actually cracks Eden open, revealing the scene to the hunters on site. Uh, her friend runs up to her side and Vampirella says she's not dead yet, but we're all here to fix that wild cool. I love this. I don't know why it was so good, but it's awesome. <laughs> uh, Cosmic Ghostwriter number one was Decent by Stephanie Phillips and Juan Cabal. It starts with Cosmic Ghostwriter blasting a bunch of aliens in space, and then old man Frank wakes up. Because remember, Cosmic Ghostwriter is uh, basically future Frank Castle given the power cosmic. Wait, no. Future Frank Castle made uh made Ghostwriter then given the power cosmic. I believe that's the order. But anyway, um, was that even what Donny Cates did, or was that what somebody did before Donny Cates' Cosmic Ghostwriter? I think that was the writer before Donny Cates who made Cosmic Ghostwriter, and Donny Cates just did the rest of the story. But anyway... Uh, so this is a whole Inception thing we got going on here. So he wakes up as old man Frank. He's traveling with uh, this person he calls Axe or Axel, uh, something about Queen of Space Junk. And then there is Marlo, a bartender who is apparently her dad. Looks like Frank is working for these two for his room and board, uh, but he's supposed to be on his way out next week. A lone gunman comes into the bar looking for Frank. There is a scruffle, and Frank comes in and says the Cosmic Ghostwriter no longer exists, and the old man gets blasted. Cosmic Ghostwriter wakes up from this new dream, uh, cursing his dreams. He says that he should have known. Uh, he never would have hesitated to take the guy out if it wasn't real life. And then we get a second story called Cosmic Ghost Stories, which is a short story by Stephanie Phillips and Jonas Scharf. Uh, basically, Frank, Cosmic Ghostwriter, dreams all kinds of stuff from his dead wife to his military days in Vietnam to being judged by all the beings he's ever killed. Galactus speaks with him, and then he gets through to another layer of the dream where he sees his children. He knows they aren't real, real too, and shoots them. He's being forced to literally face his guilt, but by who? He finally finds him. It's just some alien guy who's angry that Frank destroyed his entire planet as Cosmic Ghost Rider. He tells him he's sorry, but this won't bring them back, and magic always has a price. So he breaks the magical gem that the alien dude is wearing, breaking the dream spell. He says he doesn't need a gem that can make him relive every day of guilt over and over. They already haunt him. Very Frank Castle of him. Rogue and Gambit number one is another Stephanie Phillips title with art by Carlos Gomez, and I feel like that right there was reason enough to check it out, but I probably won't be continuing it. So, take that how you will. As the issue goes, drunk Remy gets his ass saved by his wife. What else is new? Meanwhile, Death Strike is broken out of prison transport. Yay! Or boo? 
Destiny comes to the couple with a warning. She needs them to bring her manifold, which I got really confused and thought that they gave Gateway, like, a weird modern update like they did with Agatha Harkness. No, Gateway's still Gateway. Manifold was a student of Gateway. I got them confused for a second and was like, wait a second, what did they do to Gateway? <laughs> but no, it's Manifold, who was a former uh, Avenger, I believe. Manifold needs help with all of these uh, mutant villains and escapees. Uh, so they'll do a tit-for-tat of, he might help Destiny if they help with this. Big shock, it's the British witch guy from Teeny Howard's series that I didn't really like, and Manifold is captured. I probably won't be keeping up with this, to be honest. Uh, another, another Stephanie Phillips title. Holy hell, Harley Quinn 27. This was the final issue of Stephanie Phillips's Harley Quinn issues, which I am very sad about because I loved this run. It's my favorite Harley Quinn run that I have ever tried reading. So picking back up where we were, the Harley Quinn who laughs has poison ivy. Or it's discovered it's just an ivy, as all of the Harleys swear that this is their ivy, uh, except for the mermaid one who says that her ivy has webbed fingers. So uh, it's a bit of a yikes situation. Um, and Harley ends up asking her, the Harley Quinn who laughs, where is your ivy? And she says that she lost her ivy. And then there's a bunch of fourth wall breakage. They go back to her universe. They face off with a bunch of evil Joker henchmen. Um, they are the ones who took ivy, of course. So the ivy is locked in some evil tower. They go inside and find her. She looks sick as the girlfriend of Harley Quinn who laughs. Loved it. Um, and then they send all of the Harleys back to find their own Ivies in their own universes. And Harley from our universe is headed back, you know, the original, the main, the, art, the Harley. She's headed back to her own Ivy, the end. Really good series. Um, I'm kind of sad they're going to be continuing it uh, without new numbering. Because while, yes, I hate it when they do the new numbering all the time, I only hate that when it's the same writer. Or when it's like a similar creative team. <sighs> We'll see how this goes when Teeny Howard takes it up like she did with Catwoman, which I also stopped reading when she took it up. Was I reading it beforehand? I don't even remember, to be honest. That leaves us with the two titles I was not very impressed with, Hollow's Eve number one and Barbarella number one. Um, the thing about Hollow's Eve number one was that it was almost by itself a good comic. Uh, kind of drawn like a horror comic. Her outfit is super cool. Her powers are super lame. Um, and then, and then the one little thing that was kind of interesting is like the, the plot, I guess. <laughs> wow. Amazing how that works. But, um, it turns out that when she attacks a guard as a werewolf, he turns into a werewolf. Um, so theoretically, you know, if she attacked people as other things, they might have turned into those other things as well, like a vampire or whatever. So, um, that could be interesting. I still think the mask thing is stupid, but, um... I don't know. I just, I wish they had done a better job setting her character up because now the series is completely pointless. Uh, but it had potential before it was even taken. The potential was taken away before it could even do anything with it. Yeah. And then Barbarella was just bad in all kinds of ways. I've tried to read Barbarella so many times. It just hasn't worked out. I, I, she's just kissing people. Why is she kissing everybody? <laughs> it's not even doing anything to them. <laughs> Now, because I felt like it, I read uh, or partially reread Empress by Mark Millar and Stuart Immonen. Immonen, yeah, Immonen, um, which was a 2016 series that has only seven issues, so we'll go over those somewhat 
not very briefly. Um, yeah, we'll go over those. Um, they're really cool. I really enjoyed it, um, and we'll just call this like a fun, random, in-depth thing. What, hap- what Empress takes place basically on Earth 65 million years ago. Not basically, it is on Earth. Uh, where there's this really violent king, and um, his queen runs off with their kids with her guard, who is like unbeatable for whatever reason. Um, and so we learn that the queen was never allowed to tell him when she got together with the king of her past. She was just some person. Um, and so he doesn't know that she has a sister. So she goes to her sister when they flee. Um, they have this really cool thing that they end up getting, which is called ship. And it's this robot, a ship dude that can transport you anywhere as long as it can see it, make visual contact with it. Um, and so that ends up being their transport after they eventually get it, uh, in the second issue. Um, then there's this funky alien race that's introduced kind of in passing, um, which are called the Kez, who are these, like, um, these aliens who will swap bodies with you and they will work out your body while you do whatever you want in their body. Um, because they're known for, they will do literally anything for money. They're very, very greedy. So as the family's going on this journey and ship is taking them across the universe, uh, you can't really pinpoint a lot of the places that they land correctly because of the distance and all that. Um, so they so they land on a lot of really awkward situations um and it forces them to all work together and like to be in this like near life or death kind of fight or flight and thing for a very long period of time um and it gets to the point where they eventually actually get captured by slavers um and the slavers want to sell them to the king um None of that works out in any way, and the ones who do survive once the family has blown their way out of uh, entrapment are then killed by the king uh, because he basically looked at the scenario and said, oh, okay, you were going to sell them to me? All right, I'm going to kill your ass. (laughs) You should have just given them to me. Finally, the family does make it in issue six to her sister's planet, Euphoria, which is really cool. Um, it's made up of all these precious gems, precious gems. Um, and they tell, they basically like, they greet her sister and her husband and she's like, wow, they've changed so much. Well, guess what? It's not them. They are currently at a Kez resort and those are the alien Kez who are there. So guess what? This very greedy two aliens are going to do. They're going to um, kidnap these people and sell them to the king. Because <laughs> they're far, far away from where that other stuff happened. I guess they haven't heard about it yet. So what ends up happening is uh, it ends up being coming down to the emperor basically says, yeah, I'm just going to slaughter my whole family because you guys aren't trustworthy. And so his wife is like, wait, 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 let me fist fight you for it. And he's like, LOL, that's okay, bitch. All right. And so they go to blows. The thing is, um, again, he told her never to speak about her past life. She was apparently the top rated of all time cage fighter. So she had 400 wins, zero losses. Um, she can't fly, she can't shoot, but she can somehow physically never lose a fight. So she beats him to death in front of this whole crowd. 
And I saw some critiques that were like, oh, well, why didn't she do that in the beginning if she wanted to free them? Well, because she didn't want to cause the violence, obviously. If there was a way that they were going to escape to her sister's place unscathed and nobody was going to get hurt, then she was obviously going to do that. Um, she's not like her husband. He was the one who, if he had an issue, would have just flat out killed her. Where she gave him plenty of chances, and then when it came down to it and he was still going to kill them all, that's when she had to lay it down, lay it down the law. So their daughter ends up uh, declaring herself uh, queen next in line so that the uh, the unit of guards who were incapable of disobeying orders are suddenly incapable of disobeying her orders and are loyal to the whole family now. And well, But she actually commands them to kill each other, and they do, so it's no longer an issue anyway. Um, so they take the king's ship, which comes with diplomatic immunity, and they go off and have a life together um, in the universe. And the narration tells us that... That was um, Earth's first rulers, you know, millennia ago. And it's actually kind of funny. Uh, they have a little after the end thing here where the, the kid has is putting their machine back together, their ship back together, and the queen is telling everyone it's nice to be ordinary once in a while. And uh, one of their traveling companions laughs, and he says, except for Dane, who Dane is the security guard who was like, um, constantly saving their asses throughout the whole escape. And then they all ask what that means, and Tor says, you mean he hasn't told you who he is? And then that's how it ends. It's it's pretty cute, to be honest. If you want to see more details, I did a whole in-thorough, in-depth, thorough write-up, uh, which can be seen on the podcast notes. That brings us to our TV and movies segment. For what's new and noteworthy over the past week since I have recorded the last podcast, uh, I watched Die Hard on, I want to say it was Amazon. That was pretty funny. It's very much in the vein of the uh, the Nick Cage movie, The um, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent or something like that. Very much in that vein. Very funny. Um, very self-aware, kind of in that way, I guess. But maybe a little bit more force comedic than the kind of natural hilarity that came with the uh, Nick Cage one. But yeah, good stuff. It's fine. Whatever. Um, the only other note I have is that Lisa, the Japanese singer, has shows and performances that are on Crunchyroll, which is relevant because I know people love the Demon Slayer uh intros and outros and everything, that's her. Uh, they have live performances and music videos and stuff like that. Um, so if you ever wanted to see that, I know she's on tour. I'm pretty sure she's on tour right now or recently. Um, so you can check out some of those performances on Crunchyroll. As for announcements, there was a couple of things that we learned this week. One of them is kind of an up and down one, and that is that John Bernthal is returning as Punisher for Daredevil Born Again. Um, this was kind of attached to speculation that he might be appearing in both, or sorry, in um, in Deadpool to fight Wolverine. That's that's really speculation. There's really nothing solid behind that. But he is going to be coming as a... Uh, Darede or sorry, as Punisher in Daredevil Born Again. Um, the sad thing that kind of came along with this news was that um, it, it's apparently become known that Foggy Nelson and Karen Page will not be returning, which I know people are going to be really upset with if that's true, because they were for sure fan favorites. And as everybody who is a Daredevil fan knows, Foggy and Daredevil, Foggy, they're, they're, they're a duo. You can't split that up. Um, you know, Matt Murdock needs his Foggy Nelson. 
Um, they've tried to split them up in the comics. It does not work. They are they are a duo. So, um, uh, unsure how we feel about that. We'll wait and see if that's more legit first. But more importantly, I don't know how much I talked about it. I don't know if I talked about it, but um, really good series by Pornsack Pishishot, which I probably said his last name wrong. Um, the Good Asian. It is a image comic series that I believe was 10 issues. Um, super, super fantastic. Taking place it's 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 a um kind of detective noir th- piece taking place uh more or less at a time that you would expect that um i want to say it's like 1920s or even a little bit before that um and he is a detective um he is a, a i think he's chinese he's a chinese detective in i want to say it's san francisco um, and it, there's all this stuff, there's this whole murder case, and he's trying to protect his community, and also follow the law, and, uh, is, like, parts of it are tied into, like, personal stuff for him. Um, really, really fantastic story. Very much a detective noir style of story. Um, and all centered around these Asian American characters back in the day. Um, it's being made into a series, I think, on Netflix. Hang on. Uh, doesn't actually, I just looked that up really quick. It doesn't actually have a, um, streaming service or whatever yet. Nothing like that. But it is being produced, get this, by James Wan's Atomic Monster. How awesome is that? James Wan, you know, Aquaman, sure, whatever. But also some really great horror movies. Um... And an Asian man himself. Very, very cool that they got him to be on this project. It kind of gives it a little bit of a creepy vibe that makes me think we might be getting, and that's a little exciting. Uh, Based on this article that I'm looking at here, um, what the description says is, The Good Asian is a noir story that follows Edison Hark, self-described in the Image Comics synopsis as a haunted, self-loathing Chinese-American detective on the trail of a killer in 1936. There we go, 1936 Chinatown. The Chinatown noir tale focuses on the first generation of Americans to grow up under a ban on Chinese immigration as they deal with rampant murders, abuse, abusive police, and a change-averse world. It's so good. <laughs> um, it also won a... Uh, it won an award. Yes, it won the 2022 Eisner Award for Best Limited Series, The Good Asian by Pornsack Pichichote and Alexander Tifengi. Um, really, really fantastic series. I strongly recommend it. It's got some great Asian and Asian American artists doing the variant covers as well, such as Jen Bartel, um, and, uh, Sana Takeda, who I think I've been saying wrong my whole life, uh, is probably Sana Takeda. But yes, absolutely fantastic. Super exciting that James Wan's company is making it into a series, and I'm thoroughly excited to learn more. Before we get to Mandalorian, we have to cover anime. I will get there. We'll get there. Uh, Starting with anime news, which is a couple of fun things here. So I know I talked before about the Wave Listen to Me that's getting a live action adaptation. And we have the official date that that's going to be premiering, and that is April 21st. I know that I had talked briefly about this show in the past. I couldn't get into the anime myself, uh, but I know it's very popular. And here's the description. It says, The sage is Saparo Hokkaido. One night, our heroine, Minare Koda, spills her broken heart woes. 
heartbroken woes to a radio station worker she meets while out drinking one night. The next day, she hears a recording of her pitiful grumbling being played over the live air. Mina Ray storms into the station in a rage, only to be duped by the station director into doing an impromptu talk show explaining her harsh dialogue. With just one recording, the many eccentric facets of Mina Ray's life begin to pull every which direction as she falls deeper and deeper into the world of radio. Demon Slayer came out in U.S. theaters last week and has grossed, or crossed, according to this article, <laughs> over $10.1 million for opening weekend in the U.S. The screenings include episodes 10 and 11 of Demon Slayer's Entertainment District arc, as well as the first Swordsmith Village arc episode. They're being played in over 95 countries and territories. The official episode one of the Swordsmith Village arc is going to premiere on television April 9th with a one-hour special. All of the creators and crew and cast are returning with this new season. Insomniacs After School is getting a debut date of April 10th. This is one that sounded very interesting to me, but I'm not familiar with the manga, uh, so maybe you will learn a little bit here as well. It says this was licensed by Viz Media for English, and they put out the first book this, uh, I guess it was March... Last year, March 21st, uh, the story is that two sleepless teenagers find kinship as they escape their school's astronomy observatory. Unable to sleep at night, Ganta Nakami is a cranky ass cranky in class and unpopular with his classmates. He discovers that the school observatory, once used by the now-defunct astronomy club, may be the perfect place for a nap, but he's not alone. Fellow insomniac Asaki Megari is willing to share the observatory with Nakami, with and... <laughs> and a friendship between these two begins as they bond over the most unlikely of things. Dark rumors about what befell the members of the Astronomy Club keep people away from the school observatory, and that's what makes it perfect sanctuary for Nakami and Magari to get some much-needed rest. Unfortunately, the school's faculty can't allow its unsanctioned use, but if there were a new Astronomy Club, maybe these two insomniacs could have a place to call home. That's coming out April 10th. Rent-A-Girlfriend Season 3 has a new trailer, which I will have linked in the podcast notes if that's something that you want to see. The trailer reveals the new character Mini Yamori, a cosplayer who goes to the same university as Kazuya and Chizuru. Chizuru. Uh, the third season will premiere in July on the Super Animeism block. In case you don't know about Rent-A-Girlfriend, Kinoshita Kazuya is a 20-year-old failure of a college student. He managed to kiss his girlfriend once, but he was dumped after a month. Completely spiteful, Kazuya uses a certain method to date a girl. He goes to their meeting place and suddenly hears, You're Kazuya-kun, right? A beautiful girl brushing her long black hair behind her ear was there smiling at them. Her, him. Her name was Mizuruchi. Mizuhara Chizuru. Something real is born after just a single rental. She's a rented girlfriend. A reckless rom-com filled with love and excitement is about to begin. We also have a Gundam Witch from Mercury. The anime season 2 will be premiering April 9th. The English dub of season 1 is currently premiering. Uh, and then for the anime awards, I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I believe anime of the year was Cyberpunk. Uh, whatever the Cyberpunk show was. Um, and then I'll have the rest of that link again in the podcast notes. Uh, Disney is making a live action anime of Dragons of Wonderhatch project, uh, which is pretty much going to be including the same crew that did the Tokyo Ghoul film, 
Uh, can't say if that was any good, though. So hopefully that will end up being good because it's Disney and they have money. There's also a live action. If my favorite pop idol made it to the Budokan, I would die movie coming out, uh, which is going to be released on May 12th. There is a new trailer that they put out, and this is going to be going along with the series, uh, television series with the same cast as previously. Um, and the last thing I have is that Reign of the Seven Spellblades anime is revealing its first promo video, including the main cast and a July premiere. The story is that springtime at Kimberly Magic Academy, when new students begin their first year, one boy clad in black robes with a white cane and sword strapped to his hip, this sounds so lame, approaches his prestigious school. This young man, Oliver, must form a bond with a katana-wielding girl named Nanao if he's to survive the dangers he's to face at the school that is anything but what it seems. So there is anime news. As for other animes that I've been watching, I've to I dipped my toes into Indro and Takukonomi, which is fine. Endro's was cute. Uh, and I finished Super Cub, which was fantastic. Also, we had the season finale of Tomo-chan is a Girl on Wednesday, and I am going to miss the crap out of that one. I'm not going to lie. That was definitely uh, one of my favorites of the season. And that leads us to Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 2, titled The Minds of Mandalore. I believe this was Chapter 18. <laughs> um, holy goodness! Okay, this is obviously going to spoil everything in this episode. And I think, for the most part, everything that happens is is because is it's covered like lore wise story wise i cover everything you need to know in this episode for context aside from like the one big thing uh in the last episode right so he's going to mandalore uh because he needs to bathe in the waters because that's what the uh you know what was previously the death watch cultists uh and now is this uh offspring of random mandalorians led by the armor more or less um that's what the, she says that he needs to do to regain his like uh sense of mandalo or whatever to be renewed he's got to go bathe in the mines of mandalore in the living waters and uh Bogotan, we know she had ruled there before it was blasted to glass because it was a sand planet after decades and decades and decades and thousands of years i don't know why i'm saying decades it was thousands of years of war generations upon generations of just always being war the planet was just a sand planet and so she her family ruled there she was a princess right her sister was Satine, the Duchess Satine, who uh, tried to ally with the Jedi during the Clone Wars series, I believe it was, and that did not go very well for her because of the Death Watch Mandalorians. <laughs> hey, hey, things are getting complicated here in Mandoland. Um, so that's her history, Was that was her sister, <laughs> and he is a Death Watch Mandalorian, more or less, by creed. So, um, yeah, but they end up Obviously, you know, they go down there, he gets attacked by a monster. Okay, first off, that thing was definitely some kind of Sith thing. Was that a Mandalorian from the planet who um, just, like, gained Sith knowledge to extend its life? Because that was a Sith eye on that robot thing that stole him. Definitely a Sith eye. Um, definitely. Also, can we note how much better Bo-Katan was at wielding the Darksaber than Mando? She was using that like a toothpick. Like, it weighed nothing to her. Mando has to use two hands still. She literally is, like, 
the lead. Ah, ah. So also, does that mean that she gets the sword now? No, because she didn't beat him in combat. She just used it to beat somebody else in combat. And everybody, of course, was like, oh, I want her to say Satine. I want her to say Satine. Because she's like, she's like tiptoeing around her sister while she's talking. Like, she'll mention her family and stuff. And certain members of the Fino, not, not actually saying, mention the damn duchess that was your sister who you tried to follow in the rule and that just did not go well. And that's a big part of why you're bitter. Please, please mention all of that. I can't wait. Katie Sackhoff is absolutely killing it as Bo-Katan also, in case that wasn't, like, clear at all. So, right, she has to go, Grogu has to go get her Bogatan from her planet to save him. And it's the whole thing of, like, you know, when they first rolled up to Mandalore, he's showing Grogu the maps in their ship, and he pays attention, because that's how he tells their little R2 whatever it is, who is just like us in every scenario, um the viewer. Uh, he, that's how he tells him to get back to Bo-Katan. And then Bo-Katan, like, he shows up there and she's like, man, we have got to tell this man to just fuck off. He is, he has got to stop coming here and asking us for help. And the thing pops open and Lil Grogu pops out and she's like, oh man, just tell me where I gotta go. I will be there. <laughs> just, she will do any, this, all of space will do anything for that little boy, for that little man, for that little Grogu. <laughs> Um, and so they like kind of have a little family there for a little and it's super cute and we had Paley Moto earlier in the episode and that was awesome it's always good to see her so then she goes back she saves Mando she's great with the dark saber uh, and they make it to the waters and then the thing happens and you if the thing happens that I was sitting there and I was like I literally said to my husband if they like there's like I, I as I'm as I'm about to say this, I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that they would do this because the damn thing is called a mythosaur. Mythosaur being the legendary creature that the Mandalorian supposedly trained or tamed, um, that was this legendary beast of Mandalore from pre-humanoid, I guess, times. Um and so they tamed it, and it was living down there. And it's like this bit, and that's what the 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 image of the the horned creature. Uh, it's a mythosaur that all the Mandalorians have, and we saw it in the beginning of episode one, super clear, in the armor's uh, new little cave setup place. Um, that was the mythosaur. All of that. It's like their culture is basically rooted in the mythosaur. And then also uh, Beskar, <laughs> which which for all we know is totally tied up together. But anyway, I was, I'm sitting there on the couch watching this episode and I'm thinking to myself, they're not going to, that would be so cool if they showed us a, a mythosaur, but they're not going to do that because how, and then how do you top that? And then I look at my husband and I say, I think I'm going to piss myself if they actually put a mythosaur in here. And folks, I lied a little bit because I did not pee myself, but holy shit they put a mythosaur in the mandalorian <laughs> and it was awesome oh my god i think every time i talk about star wars what do we want big monsters when do we want them as often as possible this is the big daddy i don't care the size obviously we saw whale space whales that shit was so fucking cool this topped that. They just topped the space whales with the fucking mythosaur. And I, by God, I don't I, if we don't see it for the rest of the show, I don't even, it's there. We know it's there. Oh, it's really funny also because, um, 
Pedro Pascal, who I feel so sorry for because his fans are a little bit ludicrous. Um, by a little bit, I mean entirely. Uh, he, he was in some interview and the girl was like, so are mythosaurs alive in the living waters on Mandalore? And he just looks at her and he's like, you have all these conspiracy theories. She was right. That bitch was right. I don't know where she got her info from. Maybe she's just sweaty like us, but whoo, that was so cool. And of course, you know, every picture besides like one that I could find online had already been flagged by Disney and removed. They were on top of that. John Favreau. I just, I just want to give the man a firm handshake, a hearty handshake. That was brilliant. Uh, really, really got just tops the Star Wars experience right there more or less. I'm just super excited about it, okay? I told you I was going to be annoying about it. We're getting swe physically sweating right now. <laughs> I would like to know how other people liked the episode. <clears throat> uh, so reach out and let us know, because damn, that shit was wicked! Whew! <laughs> and that wraps up. We'll, we'll end the episode there. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll let my husband in from work, <laughs> and uh, I'll be back next week. The next special is gonna be uh, on Jessica Cruz, and that's gonna be coming out at the end of April. I'm very excited for that because she is the queen in green, so it feels appropriate to be the spring podcast. Um, and and yellow is also a springtime color, but we'll talk about that when that happens. Don't miss the Barda and Scott Free podcast, which was the Valentine's Day special and the first of 2023. We'll be back next week with the Emperor Tarot card, another manga of the week, some more news, a lot of comics that came out this week that I'm super excited to check out. Um, and yeah, whatever else, more Mando, I guess, because it's so, so good. So good. Have a good week. Stay dry if it's raining. Don't get a cold if you can help it, and try not to be a douchebag.